to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Tom Boyd, and he'll be answering your questions on trout, salmon, and char. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Tom Boyd about trout, salmon, and char. Mystic Outdoors fly rods are designed and constructed by a team of professionals who are all committed to superb craftsmanship that turns creativity into beautiful, functional fly fishing rods. Mystic is simply one of the best fly rod companies based in the U.S. Mystic is featuring their new Reaper X fly rod, a moderate fast action rod with a powerful deep loading tip that shoots line with impressive accuracy and protects even light tippets against hard fighting fish. Reaper X is available starting with 3 weight all the way up to 10 weight. If you act now, you can buy one Reaper X and get one free. That's right, you heard it correctly, buy one Reaper X and get one free. So don't delay. This offer may not last long. Go to mysticoutdoors.com and look for Reaper X. Again, that's mysticoutdoors.com and look for Reaper X. Before we introduce Tom, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for one of the drawings, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Tom's section that says click here to register for the drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Tom's latest book, Trout, Salmon, and Char, courtesy of Wild River Press Books. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be something that Tom and I talk about during the show, and just submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage. And that's the same place that you can ask questions as well. So uh, listen closely, take good notes, and uh, maybe you'll win Tom's book, his latest book, Trout, Salmon, and Char. Our guest tonight is Tom Boyd. Tom is a fishing consultant, instructor, outdoor writer, editor, and lecturer. He has over 50 years' experience as a catch-and-release fly fisherman. As a professional fisherman, he has traveled the world in pursuit of fresh and saltwater species. He specializes in game fish behavior and developing techniques to catch even the toughest species. Tom's goal is to share with others all of the various aspects of fly fishing and fly tying he's learned. It's the teacher in me that wants to share knowledge on an activity that has meant so much to me. As a fly fishing advocate, he champions the sport to everyone. Tom's new book, Trout, Salmon, and Char, is now available from Tom Boyd Fishing and from Wild River Press. Tom, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. 
Thank you, Roger. It's good to be here. Yeah, good to have you back again. And uh, I know we've been anxiously awaiting your your book over the holidays, and it came out just before Christmas, I believe, just in time to make some nice gifts for some people. So uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. It was quite an effort. It was a few years in the making, that's for sure. Oh, I bet it was a lifetime in the making. <laughs> well, half a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about that book. Uh, you know, how did it how did it come to be? How did it come about? Uh, why did you write it? Uh, fill us in. Well, um, I've always been a uh, fishing uh, conservationist for years, long before I was ever a writer, and I was really interested in. Uh, I, I noticed, you know, the degradation of our fisheries, you know, in salt and fresh water. And so I became, you know, a conservationist and, you know, was in, created a few organizations to, you know, to fight for better uh, fish uh, conditions and so forth. And in any event, I started doing research uh, uh, years ago and accumulating a, a lot of knowledge and finding out a lot of information that was uh, new. I mean, it was contradictory to some of the information that was printed in books. So as the years went by and I gathered more and more information and talked to some of the, fortunate enough to talk to and study with some of the, you know, foremost uh, researchers like Dr. Robert Benke, uh, deceased now, but of, formerly of Colorado State University, you know, and a top DNA analysis. And in any event, plus people like uh, Lefty Cray and so forth, and some of those kind of people said, you know, you ought to put down in writing uh, what you're learning. And what that did was that started my, uh, well, my writing career, and I, I've been writing, you know, for magazines for, oh, I don't know, about 30 years, and finally uh, uh, decided I'd write a book, and the first book was on uh, saltwater fish, you know, the top 35 species, and Again, I did a ton of research. I would go to various locations throughout the world and would get, you know, uh, many, many guides and volunteers to help me gather uh, information, do uh, tagging and so forth. And I wrote my uh, Saltwater's Greatest Game Fish book. And but I w- at the same time I was doing uh, the research on saltwater fish, and even before that I was doing research on freshwater fish and mostly on uh, the Samanidae family, you know, salmonids, trout, salmon, char, and uh, whitefish. And in any event, again, I got a lot of so much information, and I was encouraged to to uh, write this book by a lot of people. And uh, my son Jeff and I helped it. I, I wouldn't have been able to do this. He he wrote quite a bit of this uh, uh, book as well as I did because it was a major uh, undertaking. This book is a large, and I think, and I've had people that have uh, been fortunate enough to look at it tell us that this is a breakthrough book on uh, on salmonids. That it's a uh, there's a lot of data in there that hasn't been uh, in in print before. And gathering all our data, uh, Roger, was to understand the behavior of the 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 game fish. And in understanding the behavior of the game fish, we could figure out better ways to catch them. And in the book, we have a lot of, you know, proven tactics over the years. But a lot of our tactics are new. Oh, great, great. Yeah, it's uh, quite the undertaking. It's, uh, what, over 250, almost 300 pages of, 
Of, yeah, it's uh, 320 pages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, when did you when did you first start getting, let's say, scientific about your you know your research? You know the DNA testing, was, tagging, and stuff. It was, like and that. I can tell you exactly where it was at. You know, the the first time was in uh, Canada, Atlantic Canada, uh, Labrador to be specific, and it was in started in the uh, late 70s. We were doing some things like uh, old fin clips and things like that. We didn't have like tagging information. We didn't have any uh, geneticists to work with or anything like that. It was more out of, you know, just our own interest. And then we were working in the Minipee Basin with Cooper's Minipee Camps, and they were all always very, very scientifically oriented. The uh, uh, Jack Cooper, who's uh, the owner of Minipee Camps, is a biologist. And by the, oh, I'm going to say, give or take, by the mid-'80s, we started getting uh, more specific uh, types of uh, research, more definitive types. Uh, but then we acquired tags. Uh, after that, we were doing uh, genetic work, and we got, you know, help from Dr. Richard Haydrick and others. That's when I first started communicating with Dr. Robert Benke. Bob Benke, in my opinion, was the greatest uh, Samanidae family researcher ever. In any event, we started communicating and getting uh, more sophisticated. So by the mid-'80s or so, we were getting uh, fairly sophisticated in the types of uh, information that we were gathering. Now, where is all this uh, information held um, and, you know, who has access to it? Uh, are there lots of people gathering and some people, you know, organizing and archiving it? Or how does that work? Well, out? not really. You know, one of the uh, – I, I was just talking to somebody, uh, as a matter of fact, in Mongolia. We're, we're over there studying uh, Taman and Lennox and uh, some, you know, unique and original uh, fish. And uh, the Taman Fund has been gathering some information, and we started a new fund to gather uh, additional information in this one rare uh, remote uh, section in the Tengus and uh, Shishkit uh, watershed. It's on the Siberian border and has virtually no access. In any event, uh, the people that are gathering that information are with the Tayman Fund. But every area almost has somebody different that's gathering the information. For example, I dealt with uh, a retired, after Bob Menke's death, I dealt with a retired uh, head of uh, the DNA research for the Canadian government for Department of Fisheries and, and Oceans, DFO, in Canada. And so I sent information. My son Jeff and I, for example, on that specific area, we were studying seven different fish species, game fish species in uh, Labrador and in Gava. And we would send, send the information to our scientists on that particular, on those particular fish. In other areas, whether it be brown trout or lake trout, uh, for example, lake trout, we found lake trout that were over 100 years old. And we found that out in, you know, for somebody that had been doing, Brian Dack uh, of Cluane Wilderness Lodge, he's been doing research, tagging research on lake trout for about 20 to 25 years. And before him, I think it was a Dr. Roberts for another 20 or 25 years was doing research. She has that material. I know it's very closely held 
And the problem with this, and I used to go through this, Roger, with Lefty Cray, when you write an article, when you write an article and it's just a scientific-based article, basically most people don't want to read it. The first article I ever read on, on wrote on striped bass, I sent to Lefty Cray maybe 30 years ago, and because he said he wanted to read it and he wanted to analyze it. I sent it to him. Weeks went by. He never responded to me, and he always responds to everything. I finally called him, and I said, Lefty, what happened to about my striped bass article? And he said, what striped bass article? And I said, the one I sent you. And he said, Tom, it wasn't a striped bass article. It was a conservation article. You barely mentioned striped bass. And he says, people, <laughs> you got to turn it around. It's got to be 90% fishing and 10% conservation. You have to, you know, they'll tolerate that, your readers. And it was a good lesson, and he was right. So my point is, Roger, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to get the information out, and a lot of times uh, the information is held in too few hands, and they're scientists. And what you have to do, what's important, is trying to combine the science with fishermen's knowledge. And that's one thing I think my son Jeff and I really try to do. Yeah, that's that was going to be my next question is, okay, we have this data. We know that, you know, there are lake trout 100 years old, and, and, and I'm sure you're, you're, you know, you're tracking migration stuff and, and maybe, you know, high, natural hybrids, uh, things like that. How, how does that help us um, as, as fly fishers? Well, I've always said that the key to catching a fish is understanding its behavior. If you understand what it does and why it does it, then you, can, you have a better opportunity of catching it. You know, simple, simple things. Uh, brook trout, we studied them, you know, very, very, very closely in the Menopee basis. Fish that we tagged in 1998 and 1999 as full mature adults, uh, four- and five-year-old fish, three-and-a-half to four-and-a-half pounds, were recaptured in 1916 and 1917. That means they were at least 25 years old and living. And we documented a lot of those fish that were 20 years, 21 years, 22 years old. This was absolutely revolutionary to that, uh, that system. And in studying them, in, in studying them, for example, just to use this one example in Labrador, uh, they studied brook trout and didn't understand how they got so big and came out from the ice that, you know, in such, such great shape, uh, they just couldn't understand that. And they had, you know, groups from Cornell University for a period of 10 years studied and came up with why they got so big. They were wrong. When we went up there and studied them, we figured why, why they came out of the ice. We figured out what they were eating. You know, again, revolutionary. There was a, you know, a mystery that, you know, that went on just you know, uh, forever, and nobody could understand it. And by our doing our studies, we did understand it. What that led us to was how we could catch them, for example, in the fall. Brook trout were spawning. They weren't interested in eating. But we found out if you cast a small predator, you know, like a leech pattern or something like that, they would attack that. They would eat. Uh, so in any event, the research of their behavior led to the techniques on how to catch them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, 
Bill McCartney in California, Kentucky, uh, wrote in and asked, uh, what is the biggest challenge facing each of these species of fish in the U.S. and globally? Um, it's easy, Roger. What it is is it's uh, range, degradation, and pollution. It's, uh, I'll give you a perfect example. We were fishing in, an, in the North Lakes uh, area of Mongolia. Almost nobody lives there. They have the, uh, the reindeer people, the last 40 families of that culture. The Selenge River runs out of the lake up there and runs into Lake Baikal. Lake Baikal has always been the purest lake on earth. The water there was incredibly pure. It had its own ecosystem, completely separate. Almost all the species that were there uh, were unique to that area. In any event, when people started moving there not that long ago, half a generation, they had no uh, sewage treatment plants. In any event, today, that purest lake on Earth in a remote section of Siberia has now become polluted, and most of the uh, species in that unique lake, that lake has 20% of all the world's fresh water, and it's purest, and now it's polluted. You know, and, and they have seals that are endemic only to their many, many, many fish species, and they're, they're all threatened. When man moved in, cut down the trees, started, didn't make uh, waste treatment plants, uh, overfished, you know, the lake, and it's now has to be saved. It's in a desperate state. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's everywhere. I mean... That's everywhere. Yeah, you know, I remember even in Colorado here, you know, when you and I were in our teens, we could go up backpacking and drink water out of the creek and not worry about it, you know, and uh, you can't do that anywhere in Colorado now, no matter how how high you go, right? So, um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's affecting everything. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, to me, very, very scary, you know, I've got a four-year-old grandson and a two-year-old granddaughter, and I'm just wondering what they'll have left by the time they're old enough to enjoy it, hopefully something. Um, I, had but, a, uh, I had a friend that um, was talking to one of my granddaughters when she was a little girl, and he said, you know, I used to walk here, and this was in salt water, but it's the same in fresh water. He would walk along, and he would say, you know, when I was a boy, I used to catch this kind of species and that kind of species and this, but now they're all gone. And he would say, this one was like that, and they went on and on. And finally, my little uh, six-year-old granddaughter looked at him, and she said something to the effect that, you know, why didn't you save those fish? Mm. You know, and Arnie, Arnie Costello, my friend, Captain Arnie Costello, now dead, said, you know, we didn't do our job, honey. We didn't do our job. We should have known should have done this we should have tried and but we didn't and he i had i asked him to write an article he wasn't a a writer but and the it was called the right to remember and he said you know we've taken the right to remember from our grandchildren yeah 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 it's uh kind of takes your breath away um you know it's uh there are some, and in fact, the next question kind of addresses some uh, areas where things have come back. David Watkins in Dallas, he asks, uh, what's the current status of the greenback trout in Rocky Mountain National Park and elsewhere? And he, and he asks an interesting question. He says, is there any DNA tax, 
uh, DNA from taxidermy greenbacks of 100 years ago. Well, uh, greenbacks, greenback, one of my favorites. When I moved to Colorado, uh, greenbacks, uh, there it's cutthroat, were uh, on the verge of extinction. And I used to go to some of the high mountain lakes in the and streams in the Sangre de Cristos and caught a lot of greenbacks. So what's happened to them is they are now in much, much better shape. Uh, you know, they're, they're a native to uh, one of the three native cutthroat species in uh, Colorado. And in any event, they're in much, much stronger condition than they were today. And many of the cutthroats are. And, again, what it was is recognizing, uh, you know, the problem that we had. And depending on who the governors were and that kind of stuff and how much money was afforded and how much money was raised uh, through, you know, uh, fishing license sales and conservation efforts, those kinds of things directed at a species like uh, greenback cutthroat and others. Same thing on the West Slope cutthroat. There's there's a bunch of cutthroat trout that were, you know, extremely threatened. The best story that I know on uh, cutthroat is on the biggest one, Lahontan. They were high alkaline lakes, Lake Pyramid, Lake Tahoe, years ago. For agricultural purposes, they drained those lakes, took out the streams that ran into them, that was the spawning habitat of the Houghtons. What happened is they uh, they became extinct. And Dr. Robert Benke, again, my favorite, he was on a research trip, and he found in a tiny little creek, found some, and by the way, the Houghtons, they can get uh, 40, over 40 pounds. He found these tiny little trout in a tiny little stream at Pilot's Peak, and he said these may be, Lahontans. And so he took them to the Paiute Indian Reservation uh, hatchery and other, another hatchery, and they first they tested them genetically and found out they had the Lahontan strain. So now they've been restored. They're uh, raised in hatcheries. They're transplanted in uh, Pyramid Lake is the only place they are really now. And they've grown. Now they're catching them 25 pounds. So they had to recognize what the problem was. Back then, they drank, they didn't care. They were agriculture was the most important, and what they had to do is look at the conservation. Look at look at the results. If they wanted to wipe out a unique species and the largest and most individualistic cutthroat to irrigate more farmland, you know, without taking into consideration that you would eliminate this rare species. Um, they didn't think about that back then. Now I think, you know, better uh, fishing game management and, and more organizations that fight for conservation for the greenbacks and, and others. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're <laughs> – it seems like we take one step forward and two steps back, you know. It's, you know Always. I, Roger, I'll tell you, maybe this is fantastic on me, but I – there are some areas where we have good fish game management. In Florida, there's some good examples. Alaska has some good examples. But primarily and historically, uh, maybe I'm too cynical on this, but I say what, what happens is fish um, and game management is incompetent. It doesn't do the job that it should do. It's influenced by special interests that they let a fishery be degraded and the, the fish become uh, threatened or even extinct, and then as commercial or uh, 
sport fishermen leave that fishery on its own, eventually it recovers. And when it starts recovering, the conservation, so-called conservation fish and game people, pat themselves on the back and take credit for the recovery. They're going to have a tough time doing that if they let Pebble Mine go through. <laughs> well, there's good news on that. There's good, there's good news on that. I, I fished there with my son, Jeff, and we've done some major feature articles about that. Absolutely put a lot of pressure on uh, Pruitt, uh, Zinke of Interior. Pruitt was deep. They're gone now, both of them. Uh, but with also with uh, uh, President Trump, you know, they were trying to put my son, Jeff, and I together uh, on the Pebble Mine site this past year. And and it didn't work out because, uh, you know, the elections coming up and, and campaigning and all that kind of stuff. But they just had a, um, a vote uh, in Alaska, and it was almost two-thirds of the vote was to make it more difficult for mines to, you know, be evolved, especially precious metal mines. The precious metal mines are incredible. They, there's one that they stopped doing business in Butte, Montana, oh, I don't know, 50 years ago. And last year, 2017, 20,000 snow geese landed on the, uh, the toxic uh, effluent from that mine, That's, and they all died. I mean, it's incredible. This stuff, you have to treat in perpetuity. If you, had a, if you left something that was radioactive, for goodness sakes, as bad as that is, there's maybe a half-life of 4,500 years. So maybe in 45,000 years or 90,000 years, it might help clean itself up. But this stuff, the toxic waste, and I'm, I'm a chemical engineer by uh, education. This is my field. Those things, they never clean up. And trying to build something in the worst area in the world for earthquakes and volcanoes. As a matter of fact, we fished, the first time we fished the Pebble Mine site, Upper Terralit Creek. That was two years ago in September, uh, late September. When we, on, I think it was November the 1st, there was an earthquake right there, 7.1 on the Richter scale, and it was called the Old Ilyama Earth, uh, the Old Ilyama earthquake, and that's where the Pebble Mine site is in two towns, New Halen and Ilyama. And if you look, there's some active, beautiful, giant volcanoes right there. The Redoubt volcano is right there. The most active volcano in history, second most active, 9.2 on the Richter scale, second only to the Chilean one, really affected this area. So trying to build you know, that mine and build a, a seven-mile earthen dam, 770 feet high, deep enough for the toxins that you could put the Grand Canyon in it was absolute insanity. And anyway, the vote was almost two to one to really make it difficult for Northern Dynasty, that's who the developer is, to progress with that mine. So uh, well, we, we did a lot about that. We were, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think you and I, uh, off, you know, offline talked about uh, – my experience up in northern Manitoba, Lake Kississing up there, where the guy yes, took sir. us uh, to a little, there was a lake and a mining area, and he showed us what it was. I, I think it had been dormant for 50 years or something like that. But what you said earlier uh, was ha had happened there. In that area where they put their tailings out and so forth, there wasn't a weed growing, <laughs> not one weed it was just barren well, land. Well, if you go to, you're in Colorado. Go to Leadville, Colorado. You know, yeah. they had the Climax mine. Climax 
where they mined for uh, mostly molly, molybdenum, but also uh, some silver and gold and copper and so forth. They leveled that mine. But it was even before that, in the 1890s, when they had the gold rush up there, if you go up there today and they send out several trainloads of fill, dead fill that will never grow anything, it's, for all these years, more than 100 years, Nothing has grown on that land, and that was from, you know, the tailings of the primarily the precious metal mines, you know, the gold yep. and the silver, and it's a dead zone. They have to bring in, you know, topsoil and so forth and, you know, uh, landscapers, you know, to grow things. I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, they, they absolutely killed that that area, and, and it's in perpetuity. It would stay that way yep. basically forever. Yeah, yeah, sad, sad. Well, let's take a break from that, and uh, I will be right back, and we're going to start talking some fishing tactics and stuff, um, and, uh, and and we'll we'll leave <laughs> we'll leave the dark dark side alone for a bit. So uh, hang with me, and I'll be right Good. back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They're best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at their ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tom Boyd about trout, salmon, and char. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer it on the show tonight. Tom, uh, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world, and I know you've got some things coming up. Uh, speaking schedule, fishing trips, and research and conservation products. You want to tell us what you got planned for this coming year? Sure. How, how long is the show? <laughs> <laughs> you got 24 got seconds, Tom. Start right? talking. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll do this as fast as I can. Well, um, uh, starting this Friday, uh, uh, January the 4th, I start the fly fishing show schedule. And you can check the Fly Fishing Show uh, website. It's a great event. I mean, uh, they go from Denver to Marlboro to Edison, New Jersey, Atlanta. They're in uh, Seattle, San Francisco, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I do all of them. Uh, Jeff does all of them with me in the east. Uh, and while we're doing that, in between the shows, for example, uh, I'm going to be fishing with uh, uh, famous fisherman in his own right, you know, Cami Ziegler and uh, Puget Sound for Sea Run Cutthroats in, in February, right after the Seattle show. And I'm fishing with another great friend of mine who's in the book, uh, Captain Cliff Sullivan on the American River for Steelhead on the way to uh, the Pleasanton of the San Francisco shows. This winter I'm doing uh, the Bahamas, uh, possibly Cuba. have to work out the details. I have a fixed date trip in Mongolia, uh, June the 20th to July the 17th. 
Fishing Labrador uh, in July at uh, Northern Lights, uh, also for uh, salmon at uh, Big River. I'm, I've got fixed dates in Alaska for 9:15, where we're going to redo the uh, Pebble Mine site for research uh, pro- and lots of other areas. Uh, for research uh, projects, we're working with these. Uh, we created a new fund called Save the Tayman Fund. It's brand new, working with the existing uh, uh, people that have the Tayman Fund. It's a different, but we're going to work with the Tayman Fund and create a smaller specific fund, uh, Save the Tayman Fund, and we're working with the three partners at Fly Shop Mongolia. Check their website. It just was active today. It's www.flyshopmongolia.com. Uh, again, it's for the remote uh, Tengus and uh, Shingus, Shingit watershed on the Siberian border. We fished up there for three weeks last year, too. They gave us a, a border guard with an AK-47. I mean, this is an absolute – there's no roads there. We drove across the Mongolian steppes for 1,200 miles, and almost all of it where there were no roads. I, I You know, I'm, I'm open for it to go anywhere. And I'd look up and say, you mean we're going to go there? <laughs> and my, my, my friend Amara, one of the partners, would say, yep, we're going there. And we had four-wheel drive vehicles. We rode camels. We rode horses. And we accessed these areas. So uh, that specific one we're working on. We're also going to continue our research uh, in Labrador on the seven species. Uh, we're still working with uh, DFO in Canada. So, And we're starting on... Um, other than a lot of magazine articles, Jeff and I have started on uh, four new books. Uh, one of them is going to be Mongolia Magic. One's going to be uh, Monster Trout. And the two are going to be the uh, world's greatest destination, one for saltwater and one for uh, freshwater. Cool. You, you guys are going to be busy. <laughs> Very good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, I know you like it that way, so um, uh, you'll be sure. happy, I'm sure. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk about brown trout here. I, you know, your book, uh, of course, <laughs> covers so much. Uh, we're not going to make a dent in uh, the content tonight. But, you know, in your book you talk about char, you talk about Atlantic salmon, uh, brook trout, bull trout, uh, Chinook, salmon, coho, cutthroat, stallivard, and grayling, lake trout, and so on and so on. So obviously there's no way we can get through all this. But I want to kind of highlight some of the things, uh, and, and some of the fish that are maybe closer to most of us as fly fishers than others. Um, so let's talk about brown trout. That, that was That's one trout that seems to be all over the world now, but it, it didn't used to be that way, right? I mean, um, it, it uh, got Most moved. of them... <laughs> Originally, there's, there's primarily two strains that occur uh, around the world. In, in this country, most of them came uh, from either Scotland or from Germany. And you still have the names, you know, like German brown, for example. And they're pretty different-looking uh, uh, fish. But uh, So we stock them, one, because they're hard-fighting fish. And, again, a very, very popular game fish, uh, you know, I think – I know they are the most of all the Samanidae family. Uh, they are the smartest. You know, human beings have 23 sets of chromosomes. Brown trout have 39. <laughs> so, the, potentially, they, maybe they're smarter than we are, and they they had earned that name of being wily. But anyway, they're stocked around the world because they're a great game fish. They're 
pretty good eating, not the best of all the Samantidae family, but they're good eating, but they're also tolerant. These are strong fish, and their tolerances for habitat vary about as much as any member of the trout family. Some of them, you know, like cutthroat or lake trout, have severe restrictions for their range. Not so for brown trout. They've been stocked all over North America, all over South America, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Europe. They're already w- were in Europe, but from Europe to Asia, they're, they're pretty much a worldwide species. In fact, in brown trout, people don't know this, they're more closely related to Atlantic salmon than they are any other trout species. And in fact, they can freely interbreed with Atlantic salmon. And some of the Atlantic salmon purest areas, they, they don't like, like, uh, like Newfoundland. They, there's, they've been known to interbreed with the Atlantic salmon and the folks don't, don't like them because they want to protect their Atlantic salmon. But, but they're a, a strong fish that can exist in almost, you know, any kind of reasonable habitat. Now, tell me if this is just my imagination or not, but um, I always felt when I fished, uh, especially tailwaters, that uh, I'd find the rainbows up closer to the dams and the, the colder water, and as you went downstream, you'd find more and more uh, browns. Is, is that a temperature uh, change, that the browns like it a little bit warmer than the, than the rainbows? It is. That's, that's absolutely part of it. The browns... Too, you know, the browns, they don't work as hard as rainbows. Rainbows like it, you know, they like the riffles. They like the oxygen uh, in the riffles. I mean, if, if you get in, in fact, um, you go into like Yellowstone uh, or uh, some of the Colorado rivers that are really fast in a lot of whitewaters, there's the Brooks method for nymping. And you get in and you'll nymp in really fast water, dangerous water even to wade. And you won't get any browns. You'll, you'll get rainbows. You know, they big, great big heavy nymphs that they bang on the bottom. You know, I, I caught a, uh, using this method in slow water, I caught a nine pound brown in a six foot wide stream in Colorado last November. But, uh, anyway, the, the rainbows like the fast oxygenated colder water. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've been all over the world and, and seen browns everywhere. Um, where are the largest browns that you encountered? Where did you find them? Well, I know where the largest ones are, but I've never been there. They're the biggest browns, and they're they're really threatened. Maybe they're approaching extinction. Come out of the, in the Caspian Sea, but oh. that are available to Westerners. The Arkansas River's got some great browns. There are some now on the South Island, the canals in New Zealand, but they're eating salmon food. You know, they're they're browns. They say to 50 pounds there. The Sea Run Browns at Terra del Fuego, the lodges down there, there's a number of them, and those trout are really getting big. They're, they caught one, uh, let me see, about four or five years ago, that was four feet and a half inches uh, long and weighed in the 40s. And they did the genetics, and I think it was a, it was either a six- or a seven-year-old fish, so he still had a number of years to go. And the fascinating thing that's happened in Patagonia, like in Terra del Fuego and others, is now that the Chinook, the king salmon, have escaped the commercial farming pens and they've created their own runs all south from uh, the middle of Chile all the way around Terra del Fuego, and now they're coming up the Atlantic coast uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. And the king salmon 
spawn in the fall, as do the Browns. And I was really concerned because I thought the Kings are dominant, and I thought the Browns in those areas might be absolutely threatened. And it's worked out. The fish worked it out themselves. The Kings are getting more and more populous, but they're spawning first. So what that's done, that means their spawn, their alvins, their progeny, uh, their flesh is now available for brown trout to eat who are spawning afterwards. So that's, God knows what's going to happen in South America now to those brown trout. They're already very, very big and you know, the the potential for them to get a lot bigger is coming. Right now, in, like in the Rio Grande, the browns are all through the river. The kings are spawning in the headwaters of the river, but it's an absolutely fascinating uh, story that we're going to find out more about. Uh, it's getting to the point now that we're going to be going down there and studying what's going on between them because I think it's a end up what I thought was going to threaten the brown trout is a godsend. That's those rivers are pretty darn sterile, and once the browns come in and spawn, it's um, uh, there's not much for them, you know, not much for them to eat, and now there is. Well, the the huge browns that we see coming out of South America, are those all sea run, or are, are some of those huge browns uh, strictly, you know, uh, resident freshwater fish? Well, there's Jurassic Lake that's got mainly big rainbows, but some big browns in it, in, in the Atlantic side of uh Argentine, uh, Patagonia, but typically most of the big trout are, uh, and this is true of any species, the big ones are the sea run. I mean, the sea runs, like the, the sea runs down there, they're running, whether they happen to be in Patagonia on the, on the west side, the Chilean side, there's the Humboldt Current. The Humboldt Current, as far as I know, is the richest cold water current in the world. So those fish that are uh, those brown trout can go out in that current and just there's just an incredible amount of food and on the on the atlantic side the argentine side the eastern side it's the uh, arctic current and again it's like the it's a cold water current that's extremely rich so those fish are swimming out uh, the sea runs and their the feeding grounds are they're just unprecedented there's you know, especially in those kind of uh, latitudes. You know, they're southern waters. Those waters are not that rich. So, but when they go out to sea, it's extremely rich. Has any of your research or others, other people's research uh, shown you why, for instance, browns run out to sea? Because that's not a natural thing for them, is it? I mean, well, well it, it isn't. Uh, it's more... Um, it's more uh, characteristic of a rainbow than it is a brown. But right. when they the, – let's talk about uh, Patagonia and the Rio Grande. That's the most famous sea-run brown uh, river in the world. In about the late 80s, I think – you can check it. I might not be right on that. But somewhere around then, a lodge – an owner of a property that eventually became a lodge – stock some brown trout that he got in there just to catch them. They weren't a large strain. They weren't in anything. But I think the reason that they migrated, there was no food. You know, they stayed in the river until they got big enough to venture out to the ocean. And I think they did that in order to eat. 
You know, they needed, uh, they needed more sustenance. Again, that river is going to get much richer now. When they're king salmon, they spawn and die. Brown trout spawn and live to spawn again and maybe again and maybe again. So when the salmon die, spawn and die, nitrogen and a lot of nutrients are added to that water. When you add the nutrients to the water, that increases your vegetation. When you increase the vegetation, you increase the bug number of bugs that you get. When you increase the number of bugs, you've got more food for the uh, trout to eat. So they can maybe stay in the in the river longer, but the reason that they're moving is to stay alive. It's a yeah. natural instinct for them to survive. So I guess just kind of evolutionarily, they get into the brackish zone, so to speak, and adapt to that, go a little further out, and then able to cope with the salt. And uh, well, you have to remember uh, they make it happen. They have in chromosomes. We only yeah. have 23. <laughs> we might have starved to death in the river, but they took off, and they, they went out to where there was some food. And you're right. That's how they start. A lot of fish stay in the brackish water. Sea-run brook trout, they never venture very far. Or cutthroats, sea-run coastal cutthroats, they nev- never venture very far. But the browns, the real food source there was were on the two cold water uh, currents. So in the cold water close to shore, but they're offshore. You know, they're migrating probably hundreds of miles. Mm, wow. Okay, let's take a quick break, but we'll come back and talk more about the browns here. And uh, so stick with me. I'll be right back. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island, and they're only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, who's family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for a tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tom Boyd about trout, salmon, and char. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send your question. Uh, once we receive it, we'll try to answer it on the show uh, tonight. Um, let's just see uh, what we uh, okay. Uh, okay, that, that's I had to. It's a long message here, Tom. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, this is kind of a follow-up on something you said here. The exist- this is from Phil McCartney. Um, the existence of a 100-year-old lake trout begs the question, what is going on biologically at the cellular level that allow those fish to live so long? Is it that the lake trout, what the lake trout eat? Perhaps fishermen should be getting life lessons from these fish. <laughs> yeah, kind of like the <laughs> chromosome thing. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. we all ought to... Closer attention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think they're eating a fish diet. <laughs> yeah. And they don't smoke. Uh, right. Well, it's funny, but maybe it's unique genetics. Where they tested them, again, Brian Dack and Wellesley Lake. It's not a great lake. You know, the greatest lakes for really big lake trout are Great Slab Lake, Great 
Bear Lake, uh, you know, out of Plumber's Lodge in the Arctic Lodges. And those, they commonly get, well, maybe not commonly, but often get over 70 pounds, commonly over 50 pounds, and they're big fish. They don't get quite that big in Wellesley Lake. Uh, but one thing I know about fish this and that's fascinating to me, they're just like we are. People in Japan might live to be much longer than people do in the United States, and it's, their, it's the conditions that they live in. But maybe it's genetic as well. And my feeling, and I don't have any proof of this, but after studying them for years, my feeling, they're just genetically superior in Wellesley Lake. And Brian Dack tells me that there are two different species of lake trout in his, in his lake. The smaller ones are the older ones. And they're smaller and they're darker, but they, they look different. The largest ones don't live as long, and they've been fortunate enough to have uh, data and some good scientists uh, working on this for, you know, in tagging programs for probably over 50 years now. And so they've got some really, really uh, good data. But I think it's a difficult thing to answer. But, again, they're just like we are. They're different. I just found a good friend of mine that I went to school with died today. Some of them have died earlier. Um some of them I know are going to be, live to be very, very old. I mean, it's just the way that it is, and I think it's that way with fish. Some fish of the same species can swim faster than others. I've caught fish, just fought like hell, fought like hell, caught another one of the same species that, that didn't right after that, you know, same kind of size and things like that. They're different. They're just like we are, and yeah. I think the... Uh, I think we don't know enough now, and maybe we'll never know enough to be able to distinguish why is the fish in Wellesley Lake in the Yukon live to be over 100, and they don't other places. I mean, that's one of the seven fish that we're studying in uh, in Labrador right now, and we've just started. It's only two-year-old, but the furthest, oldest one we found in Labrador is 59 years old. And again, but we haven't done that much. There might be 100-year-old fish there as well. But uh, to answer his question, and thanks, that's a uh, smart question. I think it's individual differences in uh, fish and individual differences in their genetics. Yeah, yeah. Um, question came in on the Internet. Want to know if you're going to be at the Pleasanton show? I'm going to be at all of them. <laughs> all of them. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. Good. Okay. Um, all right. When we're talking about browns, what are some of the best holding places for browns and uh, as opposed to rainbows? Do they, do they hold in different places? Oh, they sure do. One, one thing is, of all the Samanidae family, uh, including the salmon, uh, they're all, none of them have eyelids, so they're all sensitive to light. However, brown trout are the most sensitive of all the Samanidae family to light. So holding... First thing you do when you go out, look at the light. I mean, if it's if you've got a bright sun, you know that the, you're not going to catch any brown trout in shallow water, at least any um, native brown. To, you know, stock browns aren't as smart, a uh, little different, but probably not even them. They're going to be under banks and so on and so forth. Browns will hold uh, in deeper, slower water than rainbows. Rainbows, we mentioned before, they like that either right in the fast oxygenated water and some of the big trophy rainbows are in the really fast water that that like the Brooks method of nymphing 
is necessary to catch them on the bottom. But often you'll find, um, you know, rainbows in, you know, feeding lanes in, in white water and or right off the main current. And browns, maybe smaller browns that have to be more aggressive to get food, but once the brown gets to be, you know, decent size or trophy size, uh, they're usually holding in, you know, frog water or back eddies or deep pools and difficult as they get bigger, boy, they get way more difficult to catch. They learn, they become smart, and are especially difficult to catch in daylight hours. Well, that goes to the next question is, you know, we always hear about browns being, uh, you know, if you want to catch a big brown, fish early in the morning or late at night. Um, in your book, you went into much greater detail than that. Uh, in fact, you talk about how their behavior changes throughout the season in regards to that. Can you go into that for us? Yep. Early in the season, late in the season, they're fine. Sun's low, you know. Uh, in, you know, July, August, you got a high, usually a high sun. And again, uh, water temperature is important for bronze, but the main thing is light conditions. So as the season progresses and the sun gets higher in the, in the sky and the water temperatures go up, brown trout eat less and less during the day. By the time midsummer goes around, and again, I'm going to be speaking of good-sized mature brown fish or trout or, or trophies. The, the younger, smaller, dumber ones, uh, you know, they act differently. But once they have been in the water, even stockfish that become holdover fish, once the summer comes, they're almost exclusively nocturnal feeders. And I call them, you know, the Albert Einsteins of the day and the idiots of the night. You go out and fish, stay with a moss pattern in the riffles, bang, you know, brown trout. That's when they come out to feed. The, the water that you walk by in the day that would never in a million years hold a brown trout because it's shallow, uh, and, the, and they're, again, the most wary of the trout. You put a streamer in that same water at night, and they're in that warmer, shallow water looking for minnows. And so that's where you get them. The, um, um, you had mentioned, you know, these intelligent brown trout, uh, and in your book you refer to them as uh, brown trout with a Ph.D. Uh, and, uh, in that one section of your book, you go through, um, you know, if you want to catch a big brown, what are the things that you need to do to be able to catch that brown? You start with A, and you end with, I believe, I, so there's that. I don't know how many letters how many uh, letters that is in the alphabet, but uh, that's a lot of different uh, things that you recommend we try before giving up on that big brown fish you're trying to uh, big brown trout you're trying to catch. You want to walk through some of those. You don't have to go through all of them, but uh, you know uh, it's like you you don't want to give up. Is the impression I got? That's right. That. You know the thing is. It's one of the most challenging things in fly fishing. A lot of times, you you know, you, you'll be fishing, say, a, a spring creek or something like that, and you can either see a great big trout there or you're fishing areas that you know there's big trout there. And you fish everything you know. You try everything in your fly box, and you still haven't caught that brown trout. You know, and what I say is you don't give up. There's a challenge. And what you do is browns are different. You know, they're wary. You know, so what you might do is, um, and I don't have the A to 
eye in front of me, but I'll just <laughs> say what I do is I change. If I, I'm not catching them, I do two things. I change my location or I move. And But once I find out I'm not catching them and I know they're there, I change tactics. I'll use maybe a longer uh, uh, tippet. I, I'll use a fluorocarbon tippet. I know if they're down, if there's uh, if there's uh, a sunlight out, I know they're down. I'll find a deep hole, and I'll fish for them with nymphs, or I'll fish with them, uh, you know, with eggs. If there happens to be eggs from, you know, uh, some fish that's it's available. I'll try mice in the riffles because I know they like that and they like a, they like a big meal. You know, I'll fish for them in undercuts and banks. I'll find uh, frog water and I'll fish for them in, in those kind of uh, conditions. I'll high stick. I'll keep my meaning. I, if I'm fishing, say like uh, a dry or even a or even a nymph, I'll use a, a switch rod or even a spay rod with a real long leader. And I'll, I'll just use a level leader. It doesn't have to be tapered. Use a level leader and keep my fly line right off the water. And so I have a beautiful dead drift. I have another technique for bronze that I love, and this works. I'll take a small woolly bugger, maybe about an 8 or a 10, that looks like maybe a, an emerger. And I'll use maybe a 150, 200 grain line or an intermediate line. And I'll cast out, I like to roll cast maybe with a, with a switch rod. I'll roll cast and I'll strip that like a chep nymphing. I'll let the current take it and I'll strip. And bang, a lot of bronze will come up and take that. They're smart, but they never see that kind of a technique. You know, here you are stripping and what they're looking up and seeing, you know, and I use a jig style hook on my woolly bugger. Cause when I, the way the eye of the hook is positioned, when you uh, strip, that uh, your fly, that woolly bugger, comes towards the surface like a nymph or an emerger would. So that technique can be deadly. You know, I'll stop there. I could, you know, I could go on and on and on. But uh... <laughs> yeah, one of, one of the things that uh, well, you talk about. Okay, so you've, you've done all that, uh, and then you talk about now. Give it a break. <laughs> go somewhere yep. else. Come back tomorrow. Yep. Come back tonight. <laughs> Yeah. You know that fish isn't going anywhere, and uh, uh, you know it's that fish. It's the sheer Sometimes determination. They're and they, <laughs> yeah, they they don't like they don't like it. And you see a trophy fish down there; he's a trophy fish because he's smart. And maybe if you're over him too long, you know, then he's really wary, and you're not going to catch him. So you rest him. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned mice a couple times. Is uh, I always thought of mice being fished in the evening or. Or, or nighttime, uh, can you fish mice effectively during the day? Oh, yeah. You... I, you know, I, I don't care what species I'm fishing for. I, and I usually fish for big fish. I'm usually fortunate enough, as well as Jeff, to be in areas that where you have trophy kind of fish. And it's one of my favorite patterns. And one of the nice things about it, that mice and terrestrials as well, say you got a, uh, whatever, a haddis, caddis hatch or... Uh, you know, a hexagena hatch or, or whatever, and you don't have a fly to match that hatch. A mouse can work in those. It doesn't have to match the hatch or a terrestrial because you can be in the middle of a mayfly hatch and a big uh, a beetle can float by and a fish will eat that beetle. He might not eat the, the fly that you have that's matching the hatch, but and they'll also eat a mouse. I, I prefer... Uh, fishing them at night 
that usually when I'm out fishing for trophy browns, brook trout, rainbows, whatever, I'll have a rod set up with a mouse or a rat pattern. And some of the trophy fish that I've caught on uh, rat patterns, I have uh, Cammie Ziegler and Pat Cohen tie, um, you know, lemming or rat patterns for me. And some of them, not counting the tail, are seven inches long. And I catch fish on them. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Let me take a quick break, and we'll come back. And uh, we've got a few questions that came in on uh, tiger trout. So uh, uh, you know, go back in those deep recesses of your mind, and we'll, we'll talk about those in just a second. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration habits like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters of for all uh, types of fish, and to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. So if you're not already a member, uh, we invite you to join the Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Tom Boyd about trout, salmon, and char. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. So, Tom, we got a couple. Uh, Terry Chapman asked about, um, you know, how good a fighter is a hook tiger trout. Some say um, over 15 inches or over, they become good fighters. What are the fighting qualities of tiger trout when hooked? Uh, and then we had one other question from Dino asking about uh, the hybrid. So a, a tiger trout is basically a hybrid of some sort, right, or an oddity of? Yeah, uh, tiger trout uh-huh. is a, a hybrid. It's an, a sterile hybrid of a brown trout and a brook trout. And almost all, it's possible for a brown and a brook to have offspring in the wild, but very, very rare. Your uh, tiger trout are 99.999% grown in hatcheries and stocked. And uh, there's, uh, for a couple of reasons, you know, they're, they're tough. They're as tough as a uh, brown trout. Um, they, and that they grow faster, by the way, than either a brown or a brook trout. They're, one of the reasons they're stocked is because they, you know, they grow. They're very tolerant and they grow very, very, uh, quickly. When they, once they grow, they're, you know, say over 15 inches, they're virtually entirely piscivorous. They, they're fish eaters. So when they, you know, you, you can catch them on dries, but your best bet, again, is they're still light sensitive and you fish for them down. I, I didn't cover them, uh, in the book, uh, because I, I, I covered enough, we did enough, and, yeah. and again, as far as fighting, um, I would say, you know, brown trout are better fighters than brook trout, pound for pound. Um, and I would say a tiger trout is a fair fighter, but I don't think as good a fighter as a brown trout. Although, again, in the same uh, circumstances, they grow quicker and can get pretty darn large. 
Is that why they're uh, breeding them uh, in the hatcheries? Is for that reason? Is to yeah, I think you know, yeah, because browns. One of the problems, and when you stock brown trout, you catch them a couple of times, you don't catch them anymore. So you're out there fishing in a place that's loaded with big browns, and you can't. It's very they're they're difficult to catch. We do, but it took us a lot of years to learn how to do that. But in any event, uh, it's you know they're more brook trout are one of, next to. Uh, cutthroats in the high mountains, and they're obligate feeders, and they'll eat a bear hook. That you know, you can pick up any fly in your box, and they'll eat it. They'll eat it, and if the stream is flowing and it's dead winter, you can throw a dry out there, and they'll eat it because they have to. They're obligate feeders. Brook trout next to the high mountain cutthroats, uh, they're probably the dumbest trout. You can catch a brook trout and catch them again in five minutes. Um, I, I injured a big, big, big brook trout. Uh, once I, it was one of the first giant brook trout I ever caught and I set the hook like I was, you know, trying to catch a, I don't know what, you know, a shark or something. And I pulled the plate off, the uh, lip plate off them. And I had a, they weren't, uh, I had a 15 pound tippet on it. They're not leader shy. And long story short, I caught that same trout about 10 minutes later. I mean, if that was a brown trout, that would never happen. So they, the, if you stock the browns, you know, they're tough to eat. I mean, tough to catch again. And your fishery goes down. You you want to make a fish that can survive, will fight good, and is caught easily. And tiger trout fit that bill. Yeah, okay, good. Um, we're going to run out of time here for sure, but a, a couple of questions about rainbow steelhead. Um, you know, when you study, you mentioned in your book about fishing differently for hatchery fish versus wild rainbows. Um, can you explain a bit about those differences and what we might expect when fishing? Yeah, I'll give you one if I if I can make it quickly. Um, an absolute deadly method for fishing for uh, hatchery fish, and this I learned long, long, long time ago from a good friend and an expert fisherman, Ron Whiteley. And it's particularly effective in still water, and that's where they put most hatchery fish. Because in st- in still water lakes, they, there's usually uh, they don't spawn. Char will spawn in a lake, but they have to have an outlet. But anyway, uh, so you have still water. Get a fish finder. Go out, find out the depth. Look for a good place to fish. Uh, something different, you know, an inlet, an outlet, uh, a peninsula uh, where you can see there's a deep hole. Throw, throw a fish finder, a portable fish finder out. Find out the depth. Find out uh, where the trout are holding. Then you take a small rod, say a four or five weight rod. Um, you're going to fish with an indicator. Say the, the if the depth is uh, six feet, you want you take a level leader, maybe a four pound tippet, maybe 12 feet. Put an indicator at say five and a half feet, five feet nine inches, and that's where your indicator is, and tie a, a black pro-light jig, one one-hundredth ounce jig, or a um, you can get some of the uh, egg patterns. And anyway, you ca- the one one-hundredth ounce jig, that's the one I prefer, when you cast it on the water, as it sinks, it forms a V on the top of the water, and you'll see the V coming towards you. And that, if you see one hesitation in that V, you just raise your rod tip, and you'll find that Probably 75% of the fish will take on the way down. They're lipping your lure, and you don't even know it. But with this method, and you have to follow that method exactly, 
weight forward fly line, you know, fish uh, with an indicator, uh, cast it, let it sink. If once it sinks and you don't get a hit, then you strip it a couple of times. And that ProLite jig, again, it has a jig-style hook, and it starts coming up from the bottom. And this is great, by the way, over a weed bed. Say you're fishing over a weed bed. You don't want to get in the weeds. You keep getting snagged, you know, your nymph or whatever, or your scud pattern. So you strip it, and it comes up from the bottom just like a, a nymph would or an emerger would. So uh, it's an absolutely dead – I've caught hundreds of fish, you know, a day with uh, Ron Whiteley uh, of trout that were stocked. It's an absolute deadly method. Why, why is it such a deadly method? I mean, is it – the first part well, one of that, that is, the, is it the because it's coming that, from the top? I'm sorry. I, is, I'm sorry. It, I missed that, Roger. Uh, the, when you said it's dropping, uh, they, they take it on the drop, is that because they're used to being fed from pellets or, or whatever from the surface? Yeah, that, no, they're, they're used to seeing, and again, if, by the way, if the one one hundredth jig doesn't work, black one, we change to white, brown, so on and so forth, or we go to an egg. And I'll look at the kinds of eggs that are being fed to these trout. A lot of times if they are being fed an egg that uh, uh, is fish-based or shrimp-based, it's kind of orange. So I'll fish an orangish kind of egg pattern. And the same thing, those egg patterns, they move with the currents and they fluff up. But when, with the with the 100th-ounce one ProLite jig that are real cheap, maybe $4 a dozen or $5 a dozen, when you strip that, the most common food that trout eat, 90%, is, is on the bottom or near the bottom, underwater. And that's where those emerges. They start coming up the nymphs from the bottom. Most of them are black or dark colored. So when it's going down, they think it's floating free. Uh, when, it's, when you strip it and it's coming up, they think it's coming up from their, it's their cover. And it absolutely triggers strike. It's a deadly method. And I cover it in a lot better detail in the book, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another question about um, steelhead. Uh, now, um, why, and I'm, I'm going to the behavioral side of this thing, why are steelheads so hard to catch? Is there something in their behavior that can help us to catch more, to get more hookups? Oh, you bet, you bet. Uh, again, when you understand, then you're successful. Well, the reason they're harder to catch is, when they spend their, uh, you know, first few years, uh, and it depends, maybe up to seven years, in freshwater, they go out to sea and they'll be there for a couple years, three years. Then they come back. And when they're coming back, they're, and they're eating like crazy and growing like crazy in the sea. When they come back, they're only really interested in one thing, and that's spawning. They're not really interested in, you know, in having lunch or dinner. They're interested in spawning. And when they travel in different uh, waters than rainbows, rainbows will be in feeding lanes. Uh, steelhead, that's, their behavior is they want to save their energy for the spawn. People think when they spawn, oh, they live and they spawn again and again and again. Normally they don't. Depending on the habitat up north or on the, in the Aleutians, they pro probably 90% of the steelhead that spawn only once and die. Uh, so uh, there's some Paris. The bottom line is they're taking the line of least resistance when they're swimming. Some places they have to go. We've, we've studied them. By the way, they're very, very similar, Roger, in their behavior to Atlantic salmon, more so than any. They're not quite as, as difficult to catch as 
Atlantic salmon, but they're wary. But what they will do is you have to get their feeding lanes. And if you understand their – I was in Alaska with uh, Bill Battles, my good friend, and he's the founder of Fly Fish America magazine. And we had gotten together, and we were down in uh, Unamak Island in the Aleutians. And we were in a stream. We were fishing for silver salmon. And Bill caught a, a, a steelhead. And they were very rare in that stream. And I had caught a couple that day. And none of our guests, we had about a, oh, 10 guests, none of them had caught one. And Bill said, Tom, would you take this fellow out and see if you can get him a, you know, a steelhead? And I said, sure. And we went out, and it was the position. You know, I, I looked at the conditions. I saw that there were co-hosts spawning. I knew if there was any steelhead that would be behind them where the eggs from those silver salmon, those coho, where they were washing to. So I looked, I threw a couple of uh, leaves in the water, got the flow, uh, saw where the salmon were, told the guy, picked out a specific fly, a real sparse uh, fly, and said, that was weighted, and said, I think the depth is going to be X number of feet, cast right here and let your fly swing right there. First cast, he caught a steelhead. So it's reading the water and understanding what's going on. In this case, it was the steelhead. They like to eat. By the way, I, I talked to Tom Perra, who's an expert on steelhead, and we t- went back and forth a lot about uh, steelhead and do they eat. And lots of people, lots of people think they don't, like Atlantic salmon. Well, they do. Not all of them do. Maybe half of them don't. That I pump the stomachs of 126 uh, steelhead. And about half of them didn't have anything in there. So they, they weren't customers for our flies. Uh, or if they were, they'd be the first one. But others had everything in them from pebbles uh, or they, what I seem to think they like the most is something that looks like uh, a terrestrial. I think they like to eat uh, things like beetles or spiders or ants or something like that where you get a lot of nutrients and darn little volume because their their digestive system shrinks. So, you know, they're not massive feeders, but they certainly do. But it's it's mm. the key is the depth they're holding and where they're holding in the water. And it's not in if you're a rainbow trout fisherman, forget it. They're genetically identical to steelhead and completely different in their behavior. Behavior, yeah, yeah. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, but um I know char are near and dear to your heart. Um, what have you learned about the char that, that most fly fishers wouldn't know, and why are they an important game fish in your mind? Okay, A.J. McLean's favorite fish, and he fished and wrote everywhere, was an anadromous uh, Arctic char. He said they were the fastest of all the game fish. They're not. Rainbows are, you know, of all the freshwater game fish. And he thought... They were the hardest fighters. I I ranked the fish in here, and I'll, the only one I'll tell you is char. Of all these tough fish, I, as fighters, I rank char number three. Uh, they're absolutely strong. When they come in fresh from the ocean, that's the northernmost of all freshwater game fish. And what's fascinating about them is they absolutely have to winter over in fresh water, or they freeze. Saltwater freeze to 24.8 degrees Freshwater at 32. So here, the northernmost species with the highest omega-3 content in the Arctic Circle are swimming to places that have freshwater lakes uh, where they can spawn. 
they fight, they jump. Uh, they're especially great when they're fresh from the uh, salt or in the salt. They, they feed on things like uh, a lot of sand lances and, uh, you know, scuds and things like that, members of the shrimp family, and they're suckers for it. Once they get into fresh water, immediately they're transforming and getting used to the fresh water, and, boy, they're hard to catch. Once they move upstream, they congregate. You might have 10 miles of water in maybe two or three places of 25, 50, or 100 yards where they congregate. So all you got to do is find them, and, you know, once you find them, they're easy easy to catch. And that's one of the reasons they were rated third, because part of our ranking was on how difficult they were to catch. And once you find them and locate them, and I'll tell you, I was fishing uh, for them this past year, and in the big river, I'm sorry, in the Flowers River in Labrador, and I caught maybe a six- or seven-pound fish. I had 12-pound tippet, and I'll tell you what, he went under my canoe so fast, I mean like a rocket ship, and was out in the middle of that river up in the air and broke my tippet. And I never get my tippet broken. I mean, that's just, they're a strong, tough, fast fish. The Atlantic salmon fishermen often guides. They often look down on these guys, but I'll tell you what, when the, the fish they got to get up in their canoes and chase are often char because they're in, in the same uh, same kind of waters as Atlantic salmon. Okay, one uh, final question here from Norm uh, talking about the char. He says, can you, can you let us know what your views on landlocked relic char subspecies, like, for example, an Irish, I guess it's Laos, Lowe's, um, and talk about what options are possible to reestablish replacements for extinct species of char into the mid-latitude. Well, they probably can. They're they're not the char of all. This is Robert Benke thinking because again, I did a lot of research on them because uh, we we Jeff and my. This isn't answering his question. I will. I'll try. We discovered that we thought with the rarest of all the Samantidae family were landlocked Arctic char in the Menifee Basin in Labrador. Uh, we've studied them for years. We thought there were only three or 400 of them. Last year, 2017, we discovered uh, maybe 500 or 1,000 more. Uh, there are very, very rare species. There's lots of species. Of all the uh, species of, in the Samantidae family, char are the most likely to morph, the most likely to change and adapt uh, to their conditions. The ones in Europe, there's very few important species of char, and I, I don't, I mean, as far as game fish, because typically they're small, they're in uh, Spartan waters, there's not much to feed. There's some Scandinavian ones that get up, I think the record is maybe nine pounds, but typically they're a pound or two. There's only two really important game fish that are uh, of landlocked Arctic char, and they occur in the Minispee Basis and uh, Lake Mistassin, which is in an ancient crater lake uh, on the Labrador-Ungava border, and very difficult to access that fishery. Northern Lights uh, and Eve St. Marie uh, is you know, about the only one that I've known that has done that. But they're great, strong, absolute fighters. They're long-lived. They don't they, – occasionally they'll – interbreed with brook trout, but brook trout spawn in uh, streams and, and the char spawn in lakes. So some of the char, a lot of them, like a blueback uh, trout that, for Maine, they're extinct. Uh, they used to be tons of them in the Rangeley Lakes in Maine were giant, giant brook trout, but they became extinct as the uh, char became extinct. Uh, uh, Bob Mallard has got a book coming out, I think, on 
um, uh, Brook Trout and Char, where he talks a lot of the, you know, the uh, minor char species that were used primarily as forage fish for larger uh, game fish. Does, um, what's the future look like for the char? As far as uh, the I think fish? pretty good. One of, yeah. one of the things that I'm most proud of is we fought for, I represented the uh, Labrador Newfoundland Outfitters Association in the early 90s to get the gill nets taken down in Newfoundland and Labrador, which are the stronghold for char in North America. And we got those all those gill nets taken out. They were taken out starting in 1991. They finished in, uh, in 1998. The Atlantic salmon, uh, and they used to put them, the gill nets, in, in all the spawning rivers, you know, riverbank to riverbank. And you had to be, you know, if you were uh, any size, you know, and these char got big, over 30 pounds. Tree River, 33 pounds uh, and maybe more. So they get big. And, so they killed all the spawners, all the breeders, and stuff like that every year. The Atlantic salmon, at least in fresh water, have recovered in those areas. They have other threats at sea and in the Miramichi and some other problems. But the, the, uh, after all these years, still the, uh, the char haven't recovered yet because they're long-lived. They say 29 was the longest one lived. I think they live more than 40 years, and I've seen up there they're recovering, but it's going to take them probably another 50 years for that, that Newfoundland Labrador fishery, uh, char fishery, for them to be fully recovered. So I think the, the future of small char is good with the exception of habitat uh, degradation and pollution. You know, if they can keep away from that because they're not highly desired, they're not sought after, they're not – you know, chased in like rainbow trout or steelhead or Atlantic salmon yeah. or brown trout are. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. All right. Well, we're going to have to call it a night. Um, we've run out of time. We've got to wrap it up here. Uh, but um, stick with me, Tom. We're going to give away your book here in just a minute. And um, a couple other things. We're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And your book, uh, uh, courtesy of Wild River Press, Trout, Salmon, and Char. So um, hang tight here, and we'll be right back. Well, just a, a quick reminder to everyone before you leave tonight, if you can take a minute and give us your feedback about the show, I'd uh, appreciate it. You'll find a link on the home page in the section under tonight's show. It says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Um, so let's give away some of these prizes. Now, if you were in the drawings, we're going to randomly select um, from that database uh, and see if you win one of these great prizes. Um, if you uh, are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on, on how to receive your prize. Uh, so first off, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org and check them out. Great organization to support and be part of. Uh, our winner for that is Pete Gramp. Pete Gramp in Pennsylvania, so congratulations, Pete. And uh, we'll get contact you with uh, information on how you can get started with them. And um, second uh, prize we're going to give away is that one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. You can learn more about that from Amato Books. And uh, Amato Books has all kinds of books on uh, fly fishing and periodicals, so check them out. Our winner for that is Kenneth Barr, Kenneth Barr. So um, congratulations, Kenneth, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy that subscription. Okay, we're going to give away uh, Tom's latest book, Trout, Salmon, and Char, courtesy of Wild River Press, 
And um, to win this, you'll have to answer a question. And uh, uh, you answer this question um, on uh, the home page of our website. And uh, I'll clear my queue here. The question is, um, who has more chromosomes, humans or brown trout? has more chromosomes, pairs of chromosomes, humans or brown trout. Let's see if uh, that should be an easy one tonight to get a winner. Uh, and we have, uh, I have an answer, brown trout. And that's correct, right, Tom? Yes, sir, 39. Uh, Chris uh, Chris Simons, uh, Simmons uh, in Farmington, Utah. So congratulations, Chris. Chris, if you will send, you can use that same text box and send us your uh, mailing address. Then um, Tom will happily send you, I believe, an autographed copy, right, Tom? And, yes, sir. Uh, Glad and, to do it. And uh, uh, get you that book, which I know you'll learn a ton for, because we, we scratched about three pages out of the book tonight, so uh, we didn't get too far. Uh, but uh, lots to learn from it, and I know you'll enjoy it. So send me uh, your information. Go ahead, Tom. I said the book weighs a ton. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That'll that'll tell it all right there. It's got a good thud factor when you receive it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay, Chris, send us your address, and we have your email address and your name, so uh, we'll get that book off to you, and congratulations. Thanks for paying attention. Um, Tom, really appreciate you being on the show again with us. It's always a pleasure to... Uh, uh, to talk with you and, and, and for you to share your knowledge with us. Um, it seems to be unending bank of knowledge, so we'll have to do it again, of course, sometime. And uh, um, thanks for being with us. Roger, it's absolutely a pleasure. I I, I mean, it's, it's one of my absolute favorite things to talk about fish, and obviously I've done a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Okay, well, uh, uh, I'll see you in Denver at the show there. I'll stop by and say hello. So uh, have a great Looking show. Looking forward season. to it. And, uh, uh, and, and safe travels. Our next Thank broadcast you. will be on uh, January 23rd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. On that show, I'll be interviewing Rick Takahashi. Uh, our topic for the show will be the art of fly tying. We were going to do that in December this show, but uh, we had some technical difficulties. Uh, but we should have a clear run of it uh, here in January. Uh, Rick uh, is well known in the fly fishing world as a top fly tire, combining his background in color and design theory as well as on-the-water testing to create flies that look great and fish great. Join us to learn how Rick approaches his art form and learn his tips of the trade. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Milo Books, Wild River Press, Whipgrade Key Fishing Lodge, Mystic Outdoors, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And uh, don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.